Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. This week, we talked to podcaster Abe Partridge about a uniquely Appalachian art, the religious music heard in snake handling churches. It's always been music first. That was my that was my goal. But I mean, I will tell you this: if it was just about the music, I wouldn't still be going. We also traveled to Southern West Virginia and talked real estate. The Itman Coal Company store building is up for sale and the owner's looking for a buyer who appreciates its history. And he said, you really knew you were in high cotton when you were having a meeting in the upstairs of this building. And it's hunting season. We visit with women who tan deer hides using animal brains. It's slimy. I just gave up on wearing gloves. You'll hear these stories and more this week inside Appalachia. Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. We're hearing music recorded inside the Free Pentecostal House of Prayer in Gray, Kentucky, where congregants handle serpents and drink poison as part of their worship services. When I first moved back to Appalachia in the early 2000s, I found a book called Salvation on Sand Mountain by Dennis Covington. Now, usually when you hear about snake handling, it's in an exploitative way, like the villains in a pulpy story. But Salvation on Sand Mountain is more empathetic. The folks who handle snakes come across more like people you might know. And it turns out they play a style of Appalachian music that's largely gone undocumented. That music is the subject of a new podcast called Alabama Astronaut. Reporter Zach Harold recently spoke with co-host Abe Partridge about how a project intended to document the music ended up being about a whole lot more. This is a podcast about songs. Songs of them that believe the signs. This is Alabama Astronaut. By the way, the history you're hearing in this clip is actually the rattlesnakes that were in boxes up behind the Bible stand. There's a spirit that's come in to try to ruin this earth. I'll tell you this, whenever National Geographic's in there, they're hoping to God they bring out the snake. When I'm in there, I'm hoping to God they don't bring out the snake. Those are some clips from Alabama Astronaut, one of the most engrossing podcasts I've heard in a long time. And I have the co-creator and subject of that podcast with me. Hey, Partridge, I don't want to spoil anything, but can you give us a brief introduction on how you became familiar with the world of snake handling churches? I guess it depends on how far we want to go back, but uh, I pastored in Middlesboro, Kentucky myself when I was uh, in my mid-20s. I went through a crisis of faith, I guess you could say, and I was in the process of leaving the church. And during that time, uh, I've, I've met a guy by the name of Jamie Coots, who was pretty well known uh, in the serpent handling faith. Uh, we probably had about a 30 or 45 minute conversation. But in that 30 or 45 minutes, it was a real striking conversation that I never forgot. And he gave me his phone number and actually, you know, told me, I think he knew that I was struggling. Well, I started playing songs and painting and stuff like that. And uh, 
I was touring on the West Coast with an artist by the name of Jerry Joseph and this other uh, Alabamian from about Birmingham named Will Stewart. And he had a song that he wrote called Rush Arbor. It had a line in it that it mentioned Copperheads and the Holy Ghost. Mm. And uh, I was, thought that was odd. And I asked Will what it was about. And he's like, it's about a book I read called Salvation on Sand Mountain. I read it at the beginning of the pandemic. And guess who's in it? Jamie Coots. So I said, I'm going to go find this serpent handle in church, and I'm going to go. Well, I found a few, and at every one that I went to, I'd heard songs that I never knew, that I never heard before, and I had spent uh, a large portion of my life in church. Uh, for people that haven't heard the podcast, what, mm -hmm. what makes it special compared to church music they might be familiar with? It differs, number one, in the lyrical content. Um, these people happen to believe a certain passage of Scripture that's found in the book of Mark, uh, chapter 16, and verses uh, 18 and 19. What it is, is it's, it draws from Jesus' last words to his disciples before he ascended into heaven. And the last things that he told his disciples was that there were five signs that were going to follow them that believe. And uh, very quickly, the five are uh, casting out devils, laying hands on the sick, and they shall recover, speaking in tongues. They shall take up serpents, and then if they drink any deadly thing, it shall not hurt them. Now, there are hundreds of millions of Pentecostals that exist on planet Earth, and Nearly all of those Pentecostals will do three of those signs, which is that speaking in tongues, the, they profess to cast out devils, and they profess to lay hands on the sick, and then they recover. But outside of these few believers, um, I don't, I'm not aware of any other ones in the world where they literally take up serpents and literally... If they drink any deadly thing, if they consume a poison, that it does not hurt them. So whenever you hear a song that references those, you know that it had to originate within this sect of believers because there is literally no other sect of believers on planet Earth that falls under the realm of Christianity that believe these things. I'll take up serpents, drink the poison, dance and sing and shout. I believe in the word of Jesus Christ just like you told The musical style is also unique. How, how would you describe that? Dennis Covington wrote the book Salvation on Sound Mountain. He described it as a mixture of Salvation Army and Acid Rock. Yeah. And then other people have called it rockabilly, uh, you know, rock and roll, rock and roll sacred music. Um, there, I, I don't, I mean, I call it, I call it uh, serpent, hand, serpent handling gospel music, as I, I don't, uh, but you know, they just call it music. I said, I done. So, how is this tradition being passed down? Oh, it's just uh, it's the same way that music was passed down for all the centuries before uh, men that did not have access to means of recording. So person to person, church to church. Um, I have yet to meet a serpent handling musician that was trained 
or had any type of formal training in music. They they passed down both the uh, the songs and the style of their playing. Uh, I guess you would say orally. But you've got churches, you know, all the way from Alabama up up into West Virginia. It's a pretty big swath of territory. Are the song the songs are getting passed from church to church? I don't know. Are they visiting one another and passing along songs? Like, how does that cultural exchange happen? The serpent handlers know each other. They often attend each other's. They have they some sometimes they have special meetings, like they call them homecomings. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they have meetings called revivals, and people will travel from the other churches to uh, to attend. But yeah, you can. Um, I've actually been in services before where if you listen to the audio, if I if I were to give you the audio recording of the service, you would uh, assume that there was only one guitar player. But in actuality, there were multiple guitar players that they 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 pass the guitar along, you know, as each one feels led, but they play the same style because they all it all it all derives from their their sacred music. Has there been a change over the years in the kind of music that the snake handling churches are playing, or or has it maintained some kind of consistency? There have been some few. I would I wouldn't call them changes. I would call them tweaks. With the in, with the introduction of electric instruments, there were there was a you know uh, probably in the sixties, uh, but before that even they they were playing acoustic instruments and they were playing the same type of songs that they're actually playing now. I mean, it's still actively right now in 2022 being passed down. And I've got, I've got, uh, hundreds of hours of recordings that, that, uh, that, that show, uh, that show this kind of music being played back into the fifties. It seems the amount of like the depth that you've gone into all this, uh, is it all just about the music or is there something else behind it too? So it's always been music first. That was my, that was my goal. But I mean, I will tell you this, if it was just about the music, I wouldn't still be going. I've already got hundreds of hours of, of recordings. I could put a record out, but two weeks ago I was still there. It's, it's actually helped rekindle my own faith. I wouldn't say I would like to necessarily line out what that looks like and, and, you know, I'm, I'm not going to start picking up snakes. I have witnessed things in the moment. They felt absolutely supernatural. So what are you, you've got the recordings. Uh, what's the plan uh, to present those to the public? We have released the Coots Duo album, which is an album that we recorded inside of the Full Gospel Tabernacle in Jesus' name in Middlesbrough, Kentucky, which is Jamie Coots's old church. Uh, with his son Cody and his wife Cassie, Cody happens to be a fourth-generation serpent handler, a serpent handling preacher, and songwriter. So, so we've recorded uh, music with them, and we've already put that out on our website. It's already available for download. the The goal in mind is to create a documentary record that is captured within the church. But uh, now we just uh, need to go through and I need to find the most powerful moments mm-hmm. and, and get these things mixed and mastered, which I do not personally have the skills to do. And uh, 
So that's where we're at right now. And let me tell you, when it gets done, it is going to blow your mind because it's <laughs> it's uh, it's it's so good. This is one of the most compelling podcasts I've heard in a long time. It's Thank it you, it gives a a peek into a side of American culture that I don't think a whole lot of people have thought about. No. Uh, a lot of people don't even know exists. Right. And it handles it with such respect and like an apparent love of the subject matter. Yeah. It's not that it's it's not hard to treat them with respect. It's not hard. But it ne- it never gets done. I think what the overall theme is is that there's a lot of people in this world and like Dr. Hood said in the podcast, if we're going to have diversity in this country, then it requires a respect. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Zach. You can hear Alabama Astronaut anywhere you find podcasts. A lot of mountain communities are trying to inject new life by redeveloping their historic buildings. Like the Edmund Company Store, a striking building deep in West Virginia coal country in the tiny town of Edmund. The Edmund Company Store was built in the 1920s from native sandstone. It's an example of classical revival design. When it was first built, it served as the business office for Isaac T. Mann, the wealthy president of the Pocahontas Fuel Company, who controlled nine banks. But the mines in Edmund closed in the mid-80s, and the building fell into disuse and neglect. Now there's a new push to sell the old company store, which needs extensive repairs. The new owner is looking to sell for a half million dollars, a building that just recently was valued at $25,000. Jessica Lilly spoke with real-turn historian David Sabre about selling a local landmark. What kind of things were the most interesting, and what did you learn that was interesting about this place? Again and again and again occurred to me is just how important this building is to all of that community. Not certainly just Itman, the town, but all of the county. Someone, Everyone has some relationship to that building. It turned out that I had a relationship to that building. My godfather showed up this open house and he he said you know your dad would be really proud that you're selling this building and he said you really knew you were in high cotton when you were having a meeting in the upstairs of this building so, so what kind of business is your godfather or oh, they, they were in uh mining m- mining supplies my father had never said a thing to me about it and then it turns out that i too had this brief link with the building but so many people do kids who sat there and ate candy in the breezeway uh, people who went to get their checks people who bought all their furniture people who bought all their food i was also impressed at how the uh, architect certainly and it man uh, understood what a coal company store complex is you know mining had started in the late 1800s this building was built in the uh, in the 1920s, so we had had 30 years of experience building coal uh, company stores. This was one of the last built, and it was certainly one of the most in- incredibly built buildings. But the idea that they also not only did they put in the store and the office complex, but that there were these terraces up and behind the store where the coal company houses were moved to. Uh, originally, Itman was down the 
which I hadn't known before, was down the stream about a half mile. But when the store was built, they terraced all the land around it and moved all the houses there. So what does it take to sell a historical place? This, If this is your specialty, what, what are you really selling here? In the first place, many of these buildings, if they're on the National Register, have grants and tax credits available for their development. But certainly, I, I guess my ability, I have enough as a historian knowledge of, of what happens in a community over time to be able to make connections as I begin to write the narrative. Now, everything is so connected with a structure like this that it's it's about knowing a lot more than that building and a lot more than the uh, what's economically going on. Like certainly in this case, you've got the new expressway, you've got the ATV trails, you've got the Guyandot water trail, you have the broadband access. All of those things go into knowing what you're doing with any sort of property. But when you're selling something that's big as this, you, you got to know all of that. The last purchase price was just 25000 bucks, but the listing price now that you think is a good place for it is four ninety nine, so half a million dollars from that. Pretty significant jump, but you say that doesn't matter. How come? Yeah, but because whomever buys this building is going to need to have the ability to do a lot of work with the building. I mean, it's going to cost millions of dollars, and that's the kind of market that we're in. And my job also for the owner is to leave no money on the table. I mean, it is it is my part of my employment just to make sure that he gets everything and, you know, all that he can get out of it. That's my job. But uh, also, you know, to some extent, it, it prevents people from wanting to buy the building and tear it down. There are people who would like to remove the building and move the stone. Again, this building also is being sold on the global market. Foxfire Realty, our specialization has always been because we work with properties that are large-scale properties. We have to go nationally to sell these buildings and globally because, again, it will take that kind of person you know with the, the ability to take on this project to uh, to actually be the buyer for this building can you tell us about any of the conversations that are going on or any of the interest that's been sparked there are people who have talked about restaurants and uh, hotels and ATV repair shops I mean it's it's there's a lot that can go on in that building um, as far as buyers, potentials. We've we've had several people um, who have come forward who have expressed interest and they seem to be viable uh, potential owners, but the, the wheels of, of this um, train move slowly. So it'll it, it may take a little time for people to work out how exactly the the purchase of this building might be managed. When somebody purchases this building, what's it going to mean to the people there? as long as it's preserved. I, I can't imagine it being anything other than a good outcome, um, as long as it's repaired. And everybody that we're talking to is aware of the full, you know, that this is a several million dollars worth of uh, investment. This isn't just the cost of the building and the property. It's, it's everything else that needs to be done to make this a useful space. That was historian and real estate agent David Cyberay speaking with Jessica Lilly about a historical co-company store in Itman that's up for sale. 
Coming up later, we learn about traditional hide tanning using animal brains. I think because I've always been a craftsperson, like it was, and I'm not easily squeamish. <laughs> um, I just took to it really easily and fell in love with it. You're inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University in Athens, West Virginia. With career-focused liberal arts education in more than 80 degrees and programs to pursue various career options, not just a single job. More at concord.edu. West Virginia has more than 500 miles of rail trails. These are trails made from abandoned train lines that are used for walking, biking, and wheelchair travel. State officials promote them as economic drivers, and federal funding is available for creating even more trails. But, as Curtis State reports, localities are having trouble accessing the money. Thousands of miles of railroad once snaked up the hollows and river valleys of West Virginia, carrying coal and passengers. Some of the state's rail lines still serve that purpose. Others serve a new one building West Virginia's tourism economy. West Virginia has nationally recognized rail trails. They include the North Bend Rail Trail, which covers 72 miles from Parkersburg to just west of Clarksburg, and the Greenbrier River Trail, which runs 77 miles along its namesake waterway. Both are state parks managed by the Department of Natural Resources. A third, the 72-mile Elk River Trail, is under construction. It will be the newest state park. West Virginia's rail trails are set to receive even more funding through the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act of last year, a 70% increase. That could mean more communities could get the chance to become trail towns, hubs of trail-related tourism in West Virginia and surrounding states. Yeah, we're really excited to potentially be a trail town in the future. That's Carly Jones, an assistant planner in Fairmont. Fairmont is working to acquire additional railroad property to expand its rail trail system. Eventually, it could be part of a 230-mile trail from Parkersburg all the way to Pittsburgh. Most of the trail will be in West Virginia. There's only about a 20-mile gap left to make it a reality. Kelly Pack, Director of Rail Trail Development for the Rails to Trails Conservancy, a national advocacy organization, says the influx of federal funds will help close the gaps. These are the communities that are really well positioned to utilize this once-in-a-generation infusion of federal dollars through the bipartisan infrastructure law. But there are challenges unlocking those federal dollars. Unlike other states, West Virginia does not have dedicated funding for the acquisition, development, and maintenance of rail trails. The state's Division of Highways administers the federal funding. Kent Spellman, a rail trail consultant and founder of the North Bend Rail Trail, calls the process cumbersome and dysfunctional. We need to work at the policy level to clean up those programs so that they're more accessible to communities. Spellman says some projects have been in limbo for as long as several years from the time of the award to notice to proceed. So that's that's a ridiculous amount of time for a grant to just be sitting on the shelf not being used. A new group called WV Trail, which stands for Trail and Recreation Advocacy and Information Link, aims to change that. The group was formed in 2020 and held a virtual conference last year that included mayors and tourism secretary Chelsea Ruby. 
This year's conference will be in person next week at the Glade Springs Resort in Beckley. It's about building a network of trail advocates, users, and managers, and making that network uh, very apparent to decision makers in West Virginia. The bipartisan infrastructure law, which President Joe Biden signed last November, means West Virginia will get $11 million a year for transportation alternatives, which are non-motorized modes such as hiking and biking trails. That's a big increase from the current $6 million, PAC says. That means a lot, especially for the types of projects that we're talking about. The new funding can help West Virginia close those remaining gaps in its rail trail system. So can other programs, such as the Abandoned Mine Land Economic Revitalization Program. A $1.5 million Amler grant from the Federal Office of Surface Mining Reclamation and Enforcement will enable the state to purchase 23 miles of abandoned Baltimore and Ohio Railroad right-of-way in Clay County. It will help close a big gap in the winding Elk River Trail. This project means a transformational change for every community through which this trail will pass. That's how Speaker Roger Hanshaw, a Clay County Republican, when he, Ruby, and Governor Jim Justice kicked off the trail's construction in 2019. The trail is now open from Heartland to Gassaway, in addition to a short section in Clendenin. Another 18 miles of trail will be built along Buffalo Creek. Trail advocates hope it can one day extend all the way into Charleston. State officials consider such projects vital to the economic future of communities hurt by the loss of coal jobs and disasters such as the catastrophic flood of 2016. Other federal programs are helping support rail trail development in West Virginia. A $1.1 million grant from the Appalachian Regional Commission helped create the Mountaineer Trail Network Recreation Authority. It's a version of the successful Hatfield-McCoy Trail system in southern West Virginia without the ATVs. Sixteen counties are part of the network, and it projects an increase of one million visitors to the region in 10 years, and with them, hundreds of jobs. Spellman says the authority recently hired an executive director. Um, So it, it also will be connecting communities with funding opportunities for um, the development of amenities, uh, business development opportunities, because trails without amenities are not going to be a good experience for trail users. Spellman says West Virginia's rail trails could be promoted as part of a package with other recreational opportunities and amenities. We just have to keep up the momentum and keep providing communities, counties, and trail groups with the resources they need to be successful. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Curtis Tate in Charleston. In 2017, Lynn Pechaconis moved into a house in Harpers Ferry. She soon discovered it was the former home of William Saunders, the longest-serving black teacher at historical Storer College. That led her to research and then write a book about Saunders. It's called Man of Sterling Worth, Professor William A. Saunders of Storer College. Shepard Snyder spoke to Pechaconis about the biography. For our listeners who might not know, can you talk about Harper's Ferry and its impact on Black history and culture? Sure thing. So a lot of people think of John Brown when they think of Harper's Ferry and his raid, and it probably had some impacts on the town that he didn't expect. By the end of the Civil War, There were quite a number of self-liberated African-Americans, formerly enslaved people, gathered in Harpers Ferry. I've seen estimates of 500 to 700. And the um, missionaries from the Free Will Baptist Church up in the north had already sent people down here. 
Harper's Ferry seemed like an ideal place for a school. And so the school started out teaching children and soon it was believed that we needed a normal school and a school to teach teachers because the need for education was so great among the black population. So um, the Baptists up north were able to convince John Storr to donate $10,000 and Storr College was begun. And because of Storr College, uh, even a greater population of of African-Americans flocked to Harpers Ferry. And and also the school had a very progressive stance towards um, encouraging home ownership in the town. And so a number of uh, Black residents were, were able to purchase property and have homes on really good land up in the upper town area where it was not prone to flooding like in the lower town. And there was quite a thriving Black community here from you know, just after the Civil War until, you know, for about 100 years after that. This book is particularly about one professor from Store, Professor William Saunders. I was wondering if you could go into a little bit why you had an interest in him specifically. Why is he important? What I discovered was that Professor Saunders was the longest serving Black teacher at Store College So he was there from 1907. He retired in the 1940s, but continued to be an integral part of the school even after that. The president called him once um, a man of sterling worth and a friend of every righteous cause. He was known for helping struggling students. He boarded students in his home, and he taught an amazing breadth of classes from math to science to professional studies and teaching to sociology to history of West Virginia and even Bible courses. So it was really hard to to earn a degree at Storer College in the 20th century without sitting through at least one class from Professor Saunders. And he also was just an incredible man who who served in his community and was a leader throughout the area. What was it like sort of researching material about his life and kind of getting material for this book? So there was a bit of a challenge. Professor Saunders married another Store College graduate who was um, quite a bit, I think at least 12 years younger than himself. She was a teacher, Inez was a teacher here in Harpers Ferry as well. She taught at the, the elementary school for Black children here, but they never had any children of their own. So there was nobody to save their photos and their papers, no direct descendants to speak with. So really, I was left with looking at what's in the public record and what had been archived at Stork, in Store College's archives, many of which are held by the West Virginia University Library. Um, some are still held by the Park Service, which took over the Store College property after it closed. Um, and, and those records are just full of references to Professor Saunders um, he was always, you know, leading prayers, teaching classes. Uh, very early in his career here, he was a um, football coach. Um, he, he played in the band. He performed in, in productions and theater productions that the school had. So his, his name is sprinkled throughout the records all, all over the place um, in store college records and also in newspaper articles, A.B. Caldwell, history includes a a brief biography of him. Um, I also found some interesting information from a biography that his 
grandniece's husband wrote in a creative writing class at Store College. Now, fast forward to today, why should people care about Professor Saunders and Store College? Uh, what do you think their legacy is in, I guess, the modern era in 2022? It's really important to understand history, understand that that Harper's Ferry was not just about John Brown's raid and the Civil War. Um, there were a lot of really great people who lived here who were involved with the college who wanted to see people get an equal education here. I know that the alumni of Stora College held it very dear that this was a place, um, often people refer to it as a Stora College bubble. And there was not just the campus, but the whole section of the neighborhood where African-American residents felt safe, even if they didn't attend the school. The young people came to Stora College and it's just a beautiful, inspiring story that I, I find incredibly interesting. I think others do as well. As part of getting to know Inside Appalachia, producer Bill Lynch has been slowly going through our archive of folkway stories. Since our first folkway story aired in 2018, our reporters throughout the region have produced more than 120 stories. That's a lot of stories, and we're still making more. This week, Bill found a 2020 story from Folkways reporter Clara Hazlett about tanning animal hides. Tanning hides for clothes, blankets, shoes, for all kinds of things, goes back millennia. But over the years, some tanning techniques have become less common, like brain tanning. As it turns out, women in Appalachia are reclaiming the practice. Clara Hazlett, a brain tanner herself, brought us this story. In a cul-de-sac in southeast Ohio, a woman and her 12-year-old apprentice are reviving an age-old tradition with just three ingredients, a deer skin, some water, and a handful of animal brains. It's slimy. I just gave up on wearing gloves. It'll be okay. Talkin Quinn and her apprentice, Juniper Ballou, are tanning animal hides the old-fashioned way, using a method called brain tanning. It's a multi-step process of transforming a hairy, fleshy animal skin into buckskin, a buttery soft material stronger than fabric. It's called brain tanning because you actually soak the hide in animal brains. Since I started tanning last year, I've met other traditional tanners in the region, most of whom were men and mostly aged over 50, But I knew that I couldn't be the only lady tanning hides in Appalachia, and I was curious about other women who practice this tradition. I wanted to meet them, to find out what drew them to the practice and why they've stuck with it. That's how I found myself here, in Athens, with Talkin and Juniper. Hey, Talkin. I'm going to take a snack break. Should I roll up my hide? Definitely. Thanks. Through the Ohio Arts Council Apprenticeship Program, Talkin is training Juniper in the art of brain tanning. Tanning requires a strong back and a stronger stomach, patience, and some serious elbow grease. But Talkin and Juniper aren't intimidated because for them, tanning isn't just a hobby.
Chalkin's home is in a quiet neighborhood on the outskirts of Athens. The air is damp, and a gentle mist drifts through the open garage door. Talkin wears a Carhartt jacket and old jeans. Juniper is wearing a sweatshirt and rain boots. She's tall for 12. Yep, find the neck, find the membrane side, and what I would like you to do is go down the spine and put your weight into the cable. Like have your thumbs up, put your weight into it so that you can use your weight more than, like, having to use a lot of your... Talkin is coaching her apprentice through a step uh-huh. called cabling, a technique for softening the hide. Following Talkin's lead, Juniper leans back and pulls at the hide, abrading it against a wire cable. Back and forth, she yanks at the deerskin, one foot in front of the other. Both Talkin and Juniper are from southeast Ohio, a cradle of forests, rivers, lakes, and the foothills of the Appalachian Mountains. Growing up in the region, Talkin spent a lot of time outdoors, developing a deep appreciation for her natural environment. And in her early 20s, she began providing more of her own food. Like, I did a lot of fishing, um, I did some trapping, and I used to pick up a lot of roadkill which I still pick up roadkill on occasion, but I don't do it to the level I did before. Talkin didn't grow up hunting or picking up roadkill. For several years, she was a dedicated vegetarian and then vegan. But in spite of this shift in lifestyle, she continued to set high ethical standards for herself. If I was going to hunt, I had to do it using a bow and arrow and like make my own fishing line. Talkin decided that if she was going to source her own meat, she wanted to be respectful and use all of the animal. That's what led her to brain tanning. I think because I've always been a craftsperson, like it was, and I'm not easily squeamish. <laughs> um, I just took to it really easily and fell in love with it in ways. I mean, there's times where I don't like it at all because it gets smelly. <laughs> Talkin sources her hides from local game processors, where hides are often just thrown away after the meat is processed. After skinning the deer, she starts tanning, transforming the throwaway hides into bags, clothing, and knife sheaths. She sells these unique pieces online to a diverse group of customers, men and women, hippies and hunters, guys who drive big trucks, and ladies who do yoga. The thread seems to be people really wanting to connect with using all of the animal with being respectful, who really have a deep appreciation for the earth. Talkin also teaches brain tanning to learners of all ages and identities. And like her customers, her students come from distinct backgrounds. In her last class, she taught a middle-aged herbalist, a former coal miner, a 13-year-old boy, and a queer woman in her mid-20s. Her favorite class to teach is her buckskin bikini top class. And it's been this really beautiful thing for me because it's, you know, people of all different body shapes coming together to make something very sacred and beautiful for their body and to encourage themselves to, like, honor themselves and feel sexy. And some women do wear it as a bikini top. And then other people, it's this, like, secret thing that they have underneath their clothes. And it's, it's super special and magical and very intimate. By sharing brain tanning with customers and students, Talkin hopes to encourage a more respectful relationship between humans, animals, and the environment. 
She says she understands that animal rights advocates might see tanning as disrespectful or even inhumane, but she doesn't take any of her work lightly. She herself has grappled with the ethics of this practice. It's heavy. It's heavy work. And there's a lot of respect and like gratitude and even like a sense of grief sometimes, you know, for like the loss of the animals or the loss of spirit. But I also really believe that everything continues on and by continuing on, it lives on. That's the one thing that I really hope that when people look at my work, they see is that it's a lot of humbling respect that I put into it. For Talkin, brain tanning is about connecting with the natural world. For her apprentice, Juniper, it's about connecting with her heritage. Juniper belongs to the Potawatomi tribe, a tribe centralized in the Great Lakes region. At a young age, Juniper was introduced to the tradition of tanning and buckskin. My um, great aunt, when I was younger, she helped us make moccasins for ourselves. And so that like really struck me when I was younger. I was like, wow, you can make stuff out of this. With Talkin's help, Juniper is making her own medicine pouch. We have a lot of powwows, which is basically uh, dancers get um, dressed up in their regalia. Juniper plans to incorporate her medicine pouch into the regalia that she'll wear at tribal powwows in Michigan. A couple years ago, I started my regalia, but since we don't go up there a lot, um, I didn't get that far on it. So I jumped at the chance of making a medicine pouch for myself out of my hide that I've tanned. And while brain tanning isn't the most mainstream pastime for a 12-year-old, Juniper isn't discouraged. When you say brain tanning, it's literally talking about a brain. So, I mean, you say brain tanning, they're like, oh my god. And you're like, no, it's just like, like making buckskin. And they're like, buckskin? And like, it's just, it's just hard to explain. Most of the kids at school, they're pretty judgmental, so I don't usually tell them. But I mean, like, there wouldn't be harm doing it because it's not that weird. Juniper says that brain tanning, no matter how obsolete it might appear, still has value in today's society. There's so much out there that has like, shriveled up and died because people don't think it's valued enough or it's not too gross or it's like it's not something that you need to know. Brain tanning might not be something that she needs to know, but it's something that she wants to know. For Juniper, this tradition is about connecting with her ancestors and their way of life. The great thing with how um Native Americans hunt, they like, they take one and they're satisfied with it because they use all of it and what they don't use goes back to the earth. In Native cultures around the world, brain tanning was an ordinary practice, including here in Appalachia. In 18th century America, buckskin was currency. European settlers and Native Americans often traded food and supplies for buckskins, or bucks for short. According to regional legends, this is where the slang word buck, meaning dollar, comes from. Yet, as the fur trade became commercialized and Native Americans were forcibly removed from their lands, traditional tanning methods fell by the wayside, 
displaced by industrial chemical tanning. Today, the majority of global leather comes from China. And instead of using natural materials as tanning agents, most modern tanneries use chemicals. Here's Talcan. The chemicals that they use are caustic. Like when you breathe in the powders, it is harmful to the lungs. And then the humans who are working with these chemicals, they're in that in their skin, like they're in baths of tanning agent and their skin's being affected by it. And then that's running out into the water. And then you can back up and it's like the animals aren't being treated well and then their hides aren't really being respectful. So like overall, it's like a very disgusting global industry. Traditional brain tanning wouldn't be possible to replicate on an industrial scale. To tan one hide takes around 16 hours of intense labor, extended over multiple days. But Juniper says that it's worth the time and effort to source and tan their hides in an ethical way. We don't kill um, deer just for the hide. We don't, we're not like, oh, get away with the meat. Um, we usually get it from the butcher where they use all of the meat and we use the hide. So, I mean, it's not hurting the animal. It's making use of it. Tanning has changed a lot over the years. But to Juniper, traditional tanning still holds important cultural value. My uncle, when we FaceTimed the other day, he called it learning the language of his grandmother because she was taken by the settlers and taught English and, like, forced to cut all her hair off and stuff. So, like, he was learning what she had been forced to forget. Although Juniper and Talkin both came to brain tanning for different reasons, they've bonded over their shared passion through the apprenticeship program. So I've known Juniper since, I've known her since she was a baby. Talkin is a family friend, and she's watched Juniper grow up to be a confident 12-year-old. And when Talkin found out about the apprenticeship program, she saw the opportunity to pass on this tradition of brain tanning to a youth in her community. Juniper was the perfect fit. She was interested in it. I mean, she'd always talked to me about it when it was going on. She knew that I spent, like, November, I'm crazy busy, and I'm covered in deer hair and blood. <laughs> and she wasn't intimidated by it. I can be disgusted, but I am not easily disgusted. Now about a year into the apprenticeship, Juniper has experienced the ups and downs of high tanning. I feel like for me, one of the hardest steps is um, cabling because, like, I'm not patient. And um, cabling just hurts my hands too much because um, I have really long bony fingers and so they don't, they bend. Like, it's physically exhausting, you know? She flashed a huge dough. It was bigger than her. I think that she's feeling the hard work, but she's learning everything and she's been keeping a really great attitude with it. I just pushed through it and it was, it, it turned out really good. Through working together, Talkin and Juniper have grown closer, strengthening their intergenerational bond. Talkin says that this kind of relationship isn't unique in their tight-knit community. 
Athens area, to me, has seemed to live by the saying, it takes a village to raise a child more than anywhere else that I've lived in the U.S. Growing up here, I had multiple people who acted as like aunties and uncles to me, taking me under their wing and teaching me various crafts, talking to me about my life, teaching me about plants. Now a mentor and teacher, Talkin is reciprocating this gift of community to Juniper. I feel like um, we've definitely bonded over this, like a teacher-student relationship, and then um, our already knowing and caring for each other relationship. I really like teaching kids, and I think I one of the reasons why I want to live around here is that I want to inspire kind of a new definition of Appalachia, particularly around here where it's just so poor. And I want the youth to grow up knowing that there are these skills that we're kind of lost, but they're not forgotten. We still have it, and we can make it something new that's viable for today. After spending the day with Talkin and Juniper, I asked to see some of their finished work. Juniper eagerly showed off her buckskin and explained the plans to sew her medicine pouch. Talkin modeled some of her own buckskin clothing, a bikini top with braided straps and a matching knee-length skirt, stained with rich colors of brown and tan. And as Talkin described the story and process behind each piece, Juniper looked on with admiration, her eyes wide with wonder. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Clara Hazlett. Y'all, since co-hosting Inside Appalachia, I've helped share a number of stories that have lodged into my brain and changed the way I think about the region. Like Nicole Musgrave's story about a black fiddler here in my home Floyd County, Virginia. Or Katie Myers' coverage of how people are helping each other in Kentucky's floods. Or even the Zach Harold story we heard earlier about snake handling music. Have you got a favorite Inside Appalachia story? One you wish you could hear again? Or that everyone could hear again? Write us at InsideAppalachia at wvpublic.org. Or find us at InAppalachia on Instagram and Twitter. Maybe it's the right time to bring that story back. Either way, Bill says he'll listen to each of them. Till next time. Thanks for joining us as we journey throughout Appalachia. Our theme music is by Matt Jackford. Other music this week was provided by the Coots Duo, the Company Stores, and John Ingram. Bill Lynch is our producer. Our executive producer is Eric Douglas. Kelly Libby is our editor. Our audio mixer is Patrick Stevens. Xander Alloy also helped produce this episode. And hey, we're hiring. Inside Appalachia is looking for an associate producer. Check out the details on our website, wvpublic.org. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram, at inAppalachia. You can also send us an email to insideAppalachia at wvpublic.org. Visit wvpublic.org slash insideAppalachia to subscribe or stream all of our stories. Or look for Inside Appalachia on your favorite podcast app. Inside Appalachia is a production of West Virginia Public Broadcasting. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University in Athens, West Virginia. With career-focused liberal arts education in more than 80 degrees and programs to pursue various career options, not just a single job.
More at concord.edu.